6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 14 through 16. We got last time down to verse 13, did we not? The five word pictures. And um, we got that brought us to 14. Verse 14 in the book of Jude. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these. Of whom? And there's a pronoun, these antecedent is, these apostates. All these people that are twice dead and all those things, right? And then raging waves, all these idioms that we talked about in verses 12, in fact, the whole book up till now. But certainly the last few verses were focusing on the apostates, these false teachers, these, these that would have you go astray. It says, anyway, verse 14, Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. That's the King James. We'll come back to that. To execute judgment upon all and to convict all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. You get the feeling he's emphasizing something there. (laughs) And of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What is it? How many? Five times there? Anyway, a bunch. Okay, that's the passage we're going to start with and focus on tonight. This is a prophecy. It's probably the earliest recorded prophecy of a prophet. I'm saying it that way because Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is a prophecy uttered by none other than the Lord himself as he declares war on Satan in Genesis 3.15. But the earliest recorded words of a prophet are these words of Enoch. And we're going to get into it. If it were not for Jude, the epistle written by the Lord's brother, we would not, you and I would know practically nothing about uh, prophecy before the flood. We know all about cities, cattle raising, fine arts, education, manufacturing, all those things show up in Genesis chapter 4. But prophecy doesn't. And Enoch is the only prophet whose uh, words have been preserved for us. Now, as I mentioned, the words similar to verses 14 and 15 appear in the book of Enoch, an apocryphal book. There are some differences, but I'll highlight the differences later, and they will speak for themselves. But the book of Enoch is a patchwork of uh, fanciful, unscriptural material. I don't think it will profit us to go further than that, because there's so much substance that we can really get into. Now, one of the things that we've talked about before, and I'd like to just review with you, are examples in the Scripture where allusions are to us new, where the writer is making reference to something that his readers knew, but you and I don't. In Jude, of course, we had that occur with Michael's dispute with Satan over the body of Moses. He, he makes reference to that like we knew all about it. And for you and I, we say, wait a minute. You know, we dropped our pencil during that. We, we missed that lesson, right? 
And so we got there, and the same thing occurs here with the book of Enoch. Peter did the same thing, if you recall. Second Peter 2.5 describes Noah as a preacher of righteousness. Now, if it wasn't for Peter, we wouldn't know that. You really have to read into that account in Genesis to get that perception. We understand Noah and his mission and all that. The fact that he was a preacher, we would not know but for Peter's letter. A couple of things in the, in the letters of Paul. Paul names the two magicians in Egypt. You all remember the story where Moses had his staff, which turned into a serpent, eat the two serpents of the two magicians, right? Well, their names, Janus and Jambres, were not in the Old Testament. Yet Paul tells us the names of those in 2 Timothy, in his letter to 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Something else, there are words of our Lord Jesus Christ quoted that are not in the gospel. We all know it's more blessed to give than receive. Well, he doesn't say that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. He says that in Acts 20. If you can, you can dig into that if you like. And also the other brother of Christ that wrote an epistle, namely James, uh, point out that Elijah's stopping the rain for three and a half years um, was linked, uh, the, the drought was linked to the prayers of the prophet and Ahab's reign. The drought is mentioned by neither the Lord in Luke 4, but the linking to the drought to uh, Elijah's prayers is that we're indebted to uh, James for that insight. So those are just examples. There are lots of others, a whole bunch of things out of Acts 7 from Stephen and so on. So first of all, don't get uncomfortable with this idea that the Holy Spirit has preserved this truth even though the form of it is an allusion to something that the writer presumes you know. Okay? That's a figure of speech. Uh, there are all kinds of figures of speech. There's actually a list in one biblical source I have of, I think, uh, I think 83 different figures of speech. I mean, similes, allegories. You can make a list. There's 83 different things. This is one. This is a figure of speech. It's an illusion. But anyway, as far as we're concerned, it's an insight. Now, it, it starts out, he says, Enoch also the seventh from Adam. Now, why does he mention that it's the seventh from Adam? And it was Adam, Seth, Enos, Cain, Mahalil, Jared, and Enoch. Why does he say the seventh from Adam? Because there's, a third, there's another Enoch that was of the line of Cain. Bad apple. You know, bad guy. And so this distinguishes this Enoch from the other Enoch, which does uh, surface in Genesis 4. So that's that main idea. Now, I'd like, before we get into Genesis 5... It's going to be useful to focus on Genesis 4. The last verse of Genesis 4 has a misunderstanding in it. One of the things that makes Genesis an important study is there are many things in the book that we, we suffer from the translations we've had. And sometime we'll take on the whole subject of the serpent in Genesis 3. What that really was. It wasn't a serpent. That's just, that's another whole story. But let's take Genesis 4... Verse 20, uh, well, to give you the flavor of it, we have in, in Genesis 4, we have the descendants of, of Cain. That takes you down about verse 24. Then we get to, and by the way, there's lots of these names that are, are repeated. In other words, there's a Lamech also under Cain. It's a different Lamech than the one we're going to be interested in later. So recognize some of those names are, are probably common names of the time to some extent. And then in chapter 4, verse 25, we have the birth of Seth. Then we get to verse 26. And, and to Seth there also the king was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. Right? Then it says, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Doesn't that sound great? 
Well, that's, so you say if you're reading that, you're sort of puzzled because you got the impression that Abel and Adam and there's a whole bunch that called on the name of the Lord. What happened here in verse 26 to this descent of the, the first son of Seth? And the tragedy is it's slightly mistranslated. What it really says is then men began to profane the name of the Lord. And by the way, I would say 19 commentaries out of 20 don't bring this out. So you say, well, wait a minute, Chuck, are you sure you're right? See, what it really says in the Hebrew is they called something by the name of the Lord, and if you translate it casually, it sounds like they called upon the name of the Lord. If you look carefully at the Hebrew, it implies they called something else the name of the Lord. So they're profaning the name of the Lord. Now, the Targum of Ankylos, which is one of these ancient texts, says that they desisted from praying in the name of the Lord. The Targum of Jonathan says they surnamed their idols in the name of the Lord. Uh, Kimchi, Rashi, and other ancient Jewish commentators all agree with this, and Jerome, one of the classic historians, also indicates that this view was widely held in the Jews of his day. Uh, Maimonides, in his commentary on the Mishnah, which is a constituent part of the Talmud, published about 1168, also ascribes the origin of idolatry to the days of Enos. Now, this isn't a big deal except to get the tone of chapter 5. If you're just reading through Genesis and you stumble over verse 26, you wouldn't pick up the fact that there's a problem. Now, one of the things to get in perspective, we have, and I don't want to derail this whole evening on a re recap of Genesis, but Adam, we, we have a very um, not myopic, naive view of, this, of the period before Genesis 6. We, we have many misconceptions about Adam and Eve and their descendants. To give you one perception, Adam lived to see probably, we're guessing, but probably five million people that were his offspring. Also, what's worth your doing when you get home, sometime when you're in the mood to do this, is take the genealogies and their ages and when they gave birth and make a chart. Oh, you can find them in a study Bible. That's cheating. Do it yourself. Take Adam and how old he was when certain births were taking place, and how long he lived, doing a little chart, and lay out these lifetimes. Recognize, first of all, that, that long longevity, there's no reason not to take it literally. We can get into a whole reason why they lived so long, it's not important tonight. But they did. But they also overlapped. There's a period of time that we're getting into here, uh, at the time of Noah and so forth, the, the, you know, the, there were probably five or six, seven key people still alive. Shem, the, grand, the, the son of Noah, lives beyond Abram's birth by 54 years. So you get a whole different perspective of these early, this early era because these extremely long longevities. But in any case, when we get to the end of chapter 4, we have apostasy, if I can use that term, or, or rebellion, maybe it's more precise, against the name of God. Now something else that, again, I don't want to get into too much tonight because it's off the subject, sort of. But you need to recognize that Adam and Eve and their forebears lived outside the garden, but not far away. And it's as these things start to grow that we start to get distance and other things. And when Cain lives in the land of Nod and all of that. So there's a whole perspective. I don't want to get in. I can't build a night. It's not on the subject. At the same time, be aware of the fact that we jump to a lot of conclusions because the record that we have is such a summary. But we get here now, oh, to Enosh. A couple of other things you should be sensitive to. There are four Hebrew words for man in the Scripture. 
very commonly used. First one is Adam, Ish, Geber, and Enosh. Adam speaks of his origin, made from the dust of Adama, the, the ground. Ish, used for man, is man in the sense of his sex, male as opposed to female. Geber is used of, of strength, a mighty man. Enosh is a word used for man over 500 times in the scripture. It always means infirmities. If it's used physical sense, it implies mortality. If it's used in a character sense, the word it means incurable. So that feeling for the four words of for man, when you speak of his name was Enosh, if you have a, a linguistic background, you recognize right away that's a tip-off that Enosh is a loser. And it's in his days that men began to call, or that is profane, I should say, the name of the Lord. And when you understand that, that gives rise then to the raising of a prophet. And that's what Enoch is all about. Incidentally, Enosh is the third from Adam. He's Adam's grandson, right? Adam, Seth, Enosh, right? It's interesting that the third from Moses, Moses' grandson was Jonathan, the first idolatrous priest in Israel. No big deal, but it's interesting that these patterns seem to be there. Now, one small point that I can't resist pointing out, when we were talking about the um, angels that sinned, because in Genesis 6, you know, the B'nai Elohim entered into the daughters of men. One of the theories that we attempted to dispute at the time was this idea that the line of Seth, which are the good guys, and the line of, you know, that, that they intermarried and all that, that's a common but erroneous idea. If the line of Seth is so good, let's take a look at his first son. That was Enosh. See, that whole theory is based on a misunderstanding of verse 26. But again, that was that it was a previous lesson. We will move on. We have then some genealogies here, which I'll just skip over, and we'll pick this up about verse oh, 21, Genesis 5, verse 21. And Enoch lived 60, it goes through the whole genealogy. We're skipping over that, but then it gets to verse 20. Enoch lived uh, 65 years and begot Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begot Methuselah 300 years. And begot sons and daughters, and all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Simple little phrase that causes all this wonderment. What on earth is this all about? Um, by the way, as you recall, I gave you your assignment last time in the form of a trivia riddle. You know, Methuselah is the oldest man in the Bible, yet he died before his father. And that's a great, you know dinner table conversation thing that people screw. Once you realize Enoch, was, most people don't realize that Enoch was Methuselah's father. Once you know it's Enoch was the father, well, that's right, Enoch didn't die. That's great. And by the way, this is it for Enoch in Genesis 5, what we just read. We have a commentary on it. Keep your finger here because we'll come back. But Hebrews chapter 11, you all know the great faith chapter of the scripture, the hall of faith, Hebrews 11. We've been in it before. And we're going to pick up verse 5 of Hebrews 11. In this chronicle, the summary of all the great faithful, Enoch gets his place there. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, it reads, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found, because God had translated him. 
For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Boy, wouldn't you like to have that testimony? I mean, what else would you want? I mean, in terms of wanting to aspire to something that you please God. Verse 6 explains what re what's required. For without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must, A, believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Very important verse, verse 6, worth memorizing. But verse 5 summarizes what we've just read in Genesis. We didn't misread it. There's a translation problem. The writer to Hebrews amplifies the fact that this, what this says is that Enoch did not die. He was translated. Now, if you were translating from the English to the English from the Latin, you might use the word rapturo. That's the Latin from which we get this concept of the rapture. You all hear the word rapture. It doesn't appear in the Bible. It appears in the, it's a corruption of the Vulgate, translating 1 Thessalonians, etc. Speaking of the, we'd be caught up together and so forth. Speaking of the rapture of the church, that word rapture comes from the, it means to be caught up. It comes from the, the Latin, rapturo. But the, the same idea is there. He didn't see death. He was, he was translated. Now, there are two people to whom that happens. Uh, and Enoch is one of them, and Elijah is the other one. We spoke about him before. It's interesting that Enoch is translated about midway between Adam and Abraham. Elijah was translated about midway between Abraham and Christ. I don't know what you're going to do with that piece of information, but I just... Uh, there's also a... I love to throw this one out. There's also a difference between Enoch and Elijah. Elijah was Jewish. Enoch was not. And we'll come back to what that might mean in a little, little bit. Okay, now... One thing before we leave this idea, Enoch walked with God. We hear that expressed. That was not a casual stroll. It shows up in verse 22, Enoch walked with God, and it shows up in verse 24. And if you've done your arithmetic, there are 300 years between verse 22 and verse 24. Now that's a walk. You know, it's easy to die for Christ, but are you willing to live for him? That's a lot tougher. Enoch walked with God for over 300 years. And that involved several things. It involved agreement. Amos 3.3 says, how can two walk together if they're not in agreement? Scripture tells that. When Abraham took Isaac up the hill as an offering, they walked in agreement. That concept emerges in the Hebrew. So they walked in agreement. There was a concept of surrender. And what it leads to is a witness, because Enoch's words testify even today. In fact, that's what we're doing in Jude 14. Now, the thought that I'd leave you with in the margin of your notes is this idea of walking is available to you today. Maybe we should take the time to do this. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Enoch walked with God, right? Well, Colossians 2, 6 says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And I submit to you that your walk can um, avail itself probably of resources that may not have been available to Enoch. If you take a look at Galatians 5.25, again, we talk about walking. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And 2 Corinthians 5.7 uses the same phrase about walking in faith. So I'll leave you with that as your 
challenge tonight, and we'll keep moving on. But there's another aspect about Enoch's prophecy, and that the words that you hear, Jude quote, were not Enoch's first prophecy. Now, if you've been paying attention, you're going to wonder, how on earth, Chuck, do you come up with that one? We're not even so comfortable that Enoch spoke those words that Jude said. I mean, that's sort of maybe a new thought. Those are the only words we've got from Enoch. And yet I'm telling you those are not his first prophetic utterance. In fact, his most interesting prophetic utterance was the name of his son. Apparently, to put the whole thing together for you rather than tease you along, Enoch had a revelation, had a son, and then walked with God. The result of which was his prophecy. Now, how do you put all that together? Enoch's son, his name is Methuselah. He's, he turns out to be Noah's grandfather. Now, you'll read many commentaries that speculate about what Methuselah means, but let me uh, express to you what it really means. The, the root muth means to die. It occurs over a hundred times in the Old Testament. And it occurs eight times right here in Genesis 5. That Hebrew word. The root word. The root. The word shalak means to send forth. It is used over 60 times in the Old Testament. And it always sends forth judgment on the earth. The plagues of Egypt. Famine. Fire. The pestilence by the, of the prophets. That sort of thing. Shalak is to send forth, but in the sense of sending forth judgment. And Muth Shalak is the roots that make up the word Methuselah. Now, in those days, by the way, names tended to have meaning. Eve meant the life giver, mother of all living. Remember Genesis 3? And by the way, the mother of all living doesn't mean that all their descendants came from her. That's your first thought. But you see the way Adam names her. It's actually a response to the promise of the Christ. But anyway, Cain means acquired. Seth means appointed. Abraham means the father of many nations. Enoch means teaching, initiation, or commencement. Okay? Well, Methuselah means when he dies, it shall be sent. When he dies, it shall be sent. Now I'm going to lean on tradition, not the scripture. We, we know if you go... Oh, by the way, one of the things you should do is lay out in this little chart that I suggested, when, you know, make a little chart and figure out when they were born and when they died and when they gave birth and all this. If you lay that all out... You'll discover that Methuselah, the year that Methuselah dies, what do you think happens? The flood came. You bet. Now, Jewish tradition says that he died seven days before the flood. Not just Jewish tradition. How long was Noah in the ark? Seven days before the flood came. And that may be why the Jewish, you know, those things may link, so that doesn't prove anything, but I just share with you for what it's worth. So, Interesting situation. Visualize Enoch now, who had a, obviously a vision. He didn't make that up. He named it in response to a revelation that God gave him. Can you imagine bringing up that kid every time he caught a cold? Can you imagine the apprehension? As long as he's alive, it's okay. Now, I assume that this insight would be confined to a small in-group because the rest of the world probably thought the, the, you know, this family was nuts. But it's interesting 
that Methuselah thus becomes, as he lives, he becomes, Levitically speaking, or idiomatically speaking, a model of grace. Because as long as he is alive, God is sparing his judgment or mercy, right? Now that's why it's not accidental that his lifetime is deemed by the Holy Spirit to be the longest lifetime in the Bible. Methuselah of 969 years. The longest lifetime. Because there's, there is, you know, God's grace abounds. Where sin is abound, grace will even more abound. And, um, but, there, it, it, but it also is finite. There's a time at which, you know, the, the, the plug is pulled. So Enoch walked with God. We hear those phrases. It says he had walked with God uh, after he begot Methuselah. So something happened prior to Methuselah. Don't know if it was just before or long before. When Methuselah is born, Enoch apparently names him in response to a revelation. And it's after his Methuselah's birth that Enoch walks with God. And as 300 years go by, Enoch finally dies. He gave birth at 65 to Methuselah, and he lives to 365. So for those 300 years, Enoch walked with God. And he's translated. I have a question for your notepad to ponder on your way driving home tonight. Is your incentive any different than Enoch's? The revelation that Enoch had, is it any less than the revelation you have? You've got the whole thing. So I'll leave you with that. Okay. Methuselah becomes the oldest man in the Bible. God is, and the, the verse that you might offset that with is 2 Peter 3, 8, and 9, that God is not willing that any should perish. Okay, now we're going to get into Enoch's prophecy, specifically as quoted by Jude, and we're going to learn fourth. And by the way, it's interesting that the prophecy is of the Lord's second coming, not his first. We're not dealing in, in Enoch's prophecy with the cross directly, the suffering servant, the, and all of that. We're talking about his second coming, as we call it. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.